Hi YouTube, it's Joshua Mouse and welcome back to my channel. Today's video is going to be another solved true crime case for my Curious Case series. The footage from the first time around that I filmed this video somehow got corrupt, so I'm refilming it again today and hopefully this will either be out today on the Sunday date or Monday. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. I'd just like to point out this video is not being made to cause disrespect or anything like that. It's just being made to spread awareness about this case by compiling information from various different public sources on the internet. Now, with all that being said, let's delve right into this case. Tanya Kelly Flowerday was an 18-year-old girl from Johannesburg, South Africa. Her father, Bob Flowerday, ran a very successful takeaway restaurant business, and he was actually training Tanya to become a manager. Bob had plans for the future of his business and was planning to expand into a new branch where Tanya would become the manager. On Friday the 13th of June 2007, Tanya asked her father, Bob, whether he could drop her at a club. And this club was called Julian Bistro in Randburg. And Tanya wanted her father to drop her off there that evening. And that was because Tanya's friends were part of a band that were performing at that club that evening. And Tanya wanted to go support them. So Bob dropped off his daughter at the club that evening and told Tanya to phone him when she wanted to get a lift back and to go home. He then said goodbye to Tanya and unbeknowing to Bob, this would be the last time that he would ever see Tanya alive. Tanya never rang her father to pick her up and she didn't send a text message to Bob saying that she had decided to go stay at a friend's house that night or to say that she was getting a ride with somebody else. On the morning of Saturday, the 14th of June, 2003, Bob and his wife, Dolores, grew very, very worried. Now, Tanya was not the kind of person to not have told her parents where she was going or where she was. Bob tried to call Tanya's mobile phone, but for some reason, Tanya's phone was actually switched off. Bob and Dolores then decided to try phoning all of Tanya's friends to see if they knew where she was, to see if she was staying with any of them, because they thought maybe her phone had died before she had a chance to text or call them to tell them that she was staying at one of her friend's house or that she'd gone with one of her friends. However, this yielded no results at all. No one seemed to know where Tanya was. Tanya had an afternoon shift at her parents' restaurant and she had never ever missed her shift before. And when her shift came around and Tanya didn't show up to work, Bob and Dolores went straight to the police. Bob went to the Linden police station to report Tanya as missing. However, Bob was told by the police officers at this police station that he had to wait at least 24 hours before he was able to report 
report Tani as a missing person. However, in South African law, this is completely wrong. There is no minimum term that you have to wait before reporting someone as a missing person. Police officers are supposed to launch an immediate investigation into somebody's disappearance or somebody's missing persons case as soon as they're made aware of it. However, for whatever reason, the police at the Linden police station told Bob to come back after 24 hours, and Bob did just that. Bob returned the next day to report Tanya as missing as they still hadn't heard from her. However, the police officers from the Linden police station decided that they would send Bob to the Fairland police station because they didn't have any missing persons forms printed. Now, not only had 24 hours of vital searching time passed since Tanya had gone missing, which a lot of experts in missing persons cases argue is one of the most important time periods in a missing persons case to locate that missing person, but the police at the Linden police station decided to further waste this precious searching time by sending Bob to another police station simply because they didn't have any missing persons forms. When by South African law, they should have immediately started and launched a search party and investigation into Tanya's disappearance. Now, prepare to get even more frustrated as this case goes on. When Bob gets to the Fairland police station, he is told that he's unable to file a missing persons report for Tanya simply because he hadn't brought any pictures of Tanya with him. So, with the police wasting even more vital searching time, Bob went back home and came back to the police station as quickly as he could, and he brought a photo ID of Tanya. However, when he returned to the Fairland police station, he was told by the police there that photo ID was not enough, and they needed a full-length photo of Tanya to be able to launch a missing persons investigation. Now, as you can imagine, Bob grew really, really angry at the police, and he lost his temper with them. After a short period of back and forth between Bob and the police force, the police finally let Bob file a missing persons report. Tanya at this point had been missing for two days. On Monday the 16th of June 2003, Tanya had been missing for a full three whole days before the police finally decided to launch an investigation into her disappearance. Now, an investigating officer was dispatched to the Flower Day home, and for some strange reason, this investigating officer decided to focus on some kind of a drug connection. The investigating officer believed that Tanya was involved in drugs and was on some kind of a massive drug binge. However, there was no evidence whatsoever at all to support the theory that Tanya had been taking drugs or was on a drug binge. Like, there was nothing. There was no evidence to even suggest that Tanya had ever taken drugs in her entire life. In fact, Tanya had been very, very vocal about how she did not like drugs and that she was against drug use. Now on that same day, Dolores Flowerday, who was Tanya's mother, found a ID book which belonged to Tanya in their mailbox. Now Dolores knew that Tanya had taken this ID book out with her on the night that she disappeared as she needed it to get into the club and to buy alcohol. However, the investigating officer when presented with this ID book which was found in the mailbox that same day, the investigating officer couldn't give a about the ID book. The investigating officer showed no interest in it whatsoever and actually contaminated it as evidence by using unprotected hands when going through the ID book. And the investigating officer didn't even take it with him when he left. Instead, he just threw it onto a side table and then left the house. This piece of critical evidence that could have had lots of forensic evidence on it was simply tossed aside and was just seen as irrelevant by this investigating officer. This ID book could have held the key 
key to the whereabouts of Tanya or some further forensic information that could have helped with the investigation. On Tuesday the 17th of June 2003, which at this point Tanya had been missing for four whole days, zero progress had been made in locating her. In fact, an official search party, which should be organised by the investigating police forces, that never existed, it was never formed and nobody official, no police officers or anyone like that, was sent out to actually search for Tanya on the streets. Now Bob, who was absolutely furious at the lack of progress being made in his daughter's case, decided to phone the Fairland police station. He asked to speak with the investigating officer that had visited their house the day before. However, none of the police officers at the Fairland police station knew any detectives by the name that Bob was giving them. Bob then immediately lost his temper. The Fairland police station's commander then rang Bob to have a very lengthy conversation with him. As it turns out, the investigating officer that visited the Flower Day household uh, wasn't actually a police officer at all and was in fact a police reservist. The commander ended the phone call by telling Bob that the case had actually been handed back to the Linden police station because it was out of the Fairland police station's jurisdiction. Now after the commander hung up, Bob and Dolores went straight to the Linden police station to see what was happening with the case. But when they got there, nobody in the Linden police station knew anything about the Tanya Flowerday case. It was now Wednesday, the 18th of June, 2003, and Tanya had been missing for a full five days at this point. It took five days for Bob and Dolores to get any police officers to take notice of their daughter's case and for any of them to take the case seriously. And it eventually worked. Two detectives at the Linden police station suggested to Bob and Dolores that they go down to the local morgue to take a look at any of the unidentified bodies to see if any of them were Tanya. Those same two detectives then drove Tanya's parents to the Johannesburg mortuary. And it was at this morgue that Tanya's parents would finally be reunited with their daughter. Tanya was beaten, broken and abused and laid upon a bloody metal trolley as an unidentified body. Tanya was reportedly not even covered with a sheet. It would have been one of the most horrendous and horrific sights for a parent to see their child laid on a cold metal trolley with not even a sheet to cover them up. It seemed to Bob and Dolores that nobody that worked in the mortuary cared about their daughter at all. No attempts whatsoever had been made to identify Tanya. Tanya's body had actually been found on Saturday the 14th of June, the day after her dad dropped her off at the club. Her body was found on a sidewalk on Durham Street in Darrenwood. She had been left in a sitting position against a wall. Tanya had been left in the morgue for five days, unclaimed, unnamed and unidentified. Now, not only had the police officers been incompetent in this case, so were the morgue workers. When Tanya's parents identified Tanya's body, the morgue workers gave Tanya's parents her clothes to take home. Now, Dolores, a few days later, and understandably, decided to wash these clothes because she couldn't stand the sight of seeing her daughter's blood on the clothes. However, unknowingly, Dolores actually destroyed any forensic evidence that could have been on the clothes. Bob and Dolores only realised that they had accidentally destroyed this forensic evidence when the police 
a few days later, decided to contact them and ask for the clothes back so they could analyze them forensically. Even though, even if they hadn't washed these clothes, they would have been quite heavily contaminated by the point the police had finally got their hands back on the clothes. So whether Dolores washed the clothes or not, the forensic evidence found on the clothes would have easily been thrown out in court. The only item of clothing left uncontaminated was Tanya's underwear, which had been collected as part of a sexual assault kit. All the police in this case had been grossly negligent and incompetent. And this, unfortunately, wasn't without reason. According to some sources, the 36 investigating officers at the Linston police station, who most of them were actually off sick due to stress from the job had a total of 2,222 cases that they were investigating between them. That meant the officers had an average of 62 cases to investigate between them. Now among these 36 officers, they only had three vehicles, one of which had already racked up an impressive 187,000 miles on the clock. So you can see how thinly the police force was spread and how easily cases like Tanya's could have fallen through the cracks. Despite all of this intense work overload, Inspector Crystal Steinable, who was actually the only police detective at the Linsden police station, decided to ask her commander whether she could take on the case. And her commander said yes. Despite no progress being made in Tanya's case so far, Inspector Crystal was adamant and persistent that the case would be solved. She was assigned to the case on the 7th of July, 2003, almost a month after Tanya had gone missing. Inspector Christelle immediately turned to the mobile phone records to try to paint a picture of what happened to Tanya the night she went missing. And from these phone records, Inspector Christelle actually uncovered three very important clues. The first one was that Tanya had actually phoned somebody when she was inside the club on the night she went missing. Then, early the next morning at about 1.20 a.m., Tanya sent a text message to her friend, which indicated to Inspector Christelle that at that point she was still alive and unharmed, most likely. But then, at about 2 p.m. the next day, the SIM card in Tanya's mobile phone was switched out with another one, which indicated that by that point, Tanya's phone had been stolen. Inspector Christelle then decided to enlist the help of a police informant to see whether she could get any more information to do with the case. And it was with the help of this informant that a suspect was developed. And this suspect was called Ronald Edward Greensley, who was a 25-year-old male. Ronald worked at a film production company where he made TV advertisements. Ronald had had some run-ins with the police before, and he was actually seen leaving the club where Tanya had been on the night she disappeared. In fact, he was actually seen leaving the club with Tanya. Now, a friend of Tanya's, who was actually an employee of the club that Tanya had gone to, told investigators that she had never seen this man before. According to her, Ronald showed up to the club, met with Tanya, and then no more than 10 minutes later, they left together. However, Bob Flowerday, Tanya's dad, knew Ronald pretty well, as Tanya had introduced him to Bob a few days prior to her disappearance. Ronald Grimsley was arrested on July 18th, 2003. However, he was initially arrested on a arrest warrant relating to fraud. And it was during police questioning that Ronald broke down and revealed details relating to the murder of Tanya Flowerday. Ronald took detectives to the scene where Tanya's body had been dumped 
which was information that was not released to the public, so only the murderer would have known where that was. And then he confessed in front of a magistrate. While Ronald was in the holding cells at the London police station, he actually cut himself with a blade and then used a bedsheet to hang himself. He was quickly discovered and rushed to a local hospital where he was pronounced brain dead. In the holding cell, Ronald had actually left a suicide note, which read, now I'm gonna read this from the source directly. You are maybe asking yourselves the question, why I've done what I've done. There is only one thing I can think of, and that's to make the pain I'm causing our family to end. A lot of questions will go unanswered, but know that with all my heart, I am sorry for it. That young lady that had her whole life ahead of her, but it was ended before her time and her parents don't have much else to live for. She was the only child, and what has happened is unforgivable, at least in my eyes. To Mr. and Mrs. Flowerday, all I can say is, Lord, have mercy on my soul. Yous have been robbed of all your joy and happiness. I cannot even begin to understand the pain and sorrow that has been forced onto your lives. I'm really sorry about what happened. Please try to forgive me. I want you to know that I've used drugs for the past nine years. The only way to support my addiction is through stealing, lying, and scheming. And this is where I've ended up. Ronald lay for several weeks in a coma in a hospital bed. However, he would not get away with the murder of Tanya so easily. After two months of being in a coma, Ronald miraculously woke up. After being awake for a couple of days, Ronald contacted Inspector Christelle and informed her that he had more information in relation to the case. Ronald finally wanted to tell the truth of what happened to Tanya Flowerday. Now, Ronald was a long-term drug abuser and had actually been to rehab on five separate occasions. However, on each of those occasions, rehab had failed. And according to Ronald, he had actually built up a massive amount of debt with his drug dealers. And because Ronald hadn't the money to repay them, he made a deal with the dealers. On the night of June 13th, 2003, Tanya, a girl he had only properly met a few days prior, phoned Ronald to pick her up from the club. And so they did, and after a while, they left the club together. Ronald then took her to a house in Fontainebleau, I'm gonna put it on screen, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, where they met with two Nigerian men. Ronald then had sex with Tanya on camera, before the other two men took over. According to Ronald, the other two men raped her, beat her, and then murdered Tanya, all while recording the entire thing. They had made a snuff movie, Ronald told the inspector. Ronald gave these men Tanya, and in return, they cleared his massive debt that he had with the drug dealers. Afterwards, the two men used Ronald's car to dump Tanya's body on the sidewalk. Now, there was some evidence to support Ronald's claims. Ronald was a long-time drug addict, and as some of you may know, drug addiction is a very, very, very powerful motivator to make you do things that are unthinkable. Tanya's injuries were unusually severe. Tanya has sustained scratches to her face, neck and back. She had abrasions and contusions over most of her body. She had been beaten in the face, on her arms, legs and buttocks with a blunt object. There were also injuries to her head and her eyelids were swollen. Now, in the vast majority of rape cases, the victim does not exhibit any genital injuries or any clear sign that a rape has occurred. However, in Tanya's case, there had been some very severe genital trauma. And it was clear from tearing that she had also been sodomized. Ultimately, Tanya had been strangled to death. 
To investigators, it was clear that Tanya's final moments had been very, very brutal and very, very violent. Some detectives believed that it wasn't possible that one person could have carried out all these injuries on Tanya. However, other detectives believed that it was possible that one person had carried out all this attack. But of course, Ronald's entire claim rested on the fact that they had recorded the entire murder. And if Ronald's claims were true, the best evidence would be that of the snuff movie. Okay, so let me give you a quick lowdown on what a snuff movie is for those of you who aren't aware. A snuff film is a video recording of someone, usually a woman, being murdered as part of violent pornography. Now, nobody seems to know whether these movies actually exist or whether they're just a thing of urban legend. And at the time of this case, there had been no confirmed reports of snuff films actually existing. The investigation took the investigators into Hillbro, which is an area of Johannesburg which used to be quite up class but had been recently run down. There was a lot of drugs and prostitution in this area. And it led to the arrest of, now I'm not even gonna try to pronounce his name, so I'm just gonna put his name on screen. And this man was a 33 year old man who was a Nigerian drug lord. He was taken into custody on October 3rd, 2003. Although he was arrested on drug charges, Tanya's parents were notified of the arrest and were told that the police were investigating him in connection to Tanya's murder. The police refrained from any meaningful comments at all. However, they seized his computer's hard drive and several video cassette tapes, and they sealed them in evidence containers. Police quickly began to search the hard drive and the video cassette tapes for any evidence at all. They knew the only way to easily prosecute Ronald was to find the snuff tape. But this is when Ronald decided to change his story. Apparently, there was now no snuff movie. There was no other men. And he told investigators a variation of his original account. According to him, it had only been him. According to the new accounts, on the 13th of June, 2003, Ronald had bought heroin in Hillbro, which he mixed with tobacco and smoked. Later, he also smokes weed and drank alcohol. Tanya then phoned him to come fetch her from the club, which he did. On the way back to Tanya's parents' home, they actually stopped at Ronald's parents' home because Ronald had an empty stomach and he really needed something to eat to help consume the alcohol that he had been drinking. Apparently, they had began to kiss at Ronald's parents' house. But Tanya quickly pushed him away and said that she couldn't go on with it. Ronald, before eating any food, then left his parents' house with Tanya to take her home. When they got to Darrenwood, Ronald stopped his car, which was, I'm gonna put it on screen, and he stopped his car to apologize to Tanya for his behavior. He then tried to kiss her again, but she once again refused. So he decided to smoke a heroin cigarette instead. Now, as I said earlier, Tanya didn't like drugs one bit. And as soon as she realized what he was smoking, they began to argue. She apparently tried to grab the cigarette from him, and then they started to wrestle. According to Ronald, Tanya began screaming at him about the drugs. And then Ronald completely blacked out. And when he came to his senses, his hands were around her throat with her pants off and his pants unbuttoned. He told the police that he did not know how long he had blacked out for. He claimed that he had no memory of raping her, beating her or murdering her. Ronald's new account had a lot of issues. And one of these issues were with Ronald's apparent heroin induced blackout. Ronald would have had to have ingested three times the amount of heroin he had actually taken 
to have caused a blackout. Now, not only that, but heroin slows down the brain functions, which leads to tidiness, fatigue, lethargy, and emotional instability. The blackouts that Ronald had described sounds a lot more like a blackout that would happen to someone who was intoxicated through the use of alcohol, not somebody who had smoked too much heroin. A heroin user wouldn't just hit someone. Heroin basically is like a sedative. According to one expert, it is next to impossible to have beaten and raped someone if you had ingested enough heroin to black out from it. Then, after the alleged blackouts, with all that heroin going through his system, Ronald still managed to realize what he had done, cleans up, and then moves Tanya's body. He redressed Tanya's body, put her in a seated position before driving a bit away and dumping Tanya's coat. This seemed to investigators way too organized for someone who had taken a blackout amount of heroin. Somebody who was supposedly completely out of control a few moments before. The autopsy of Tanya also went against this account. The nature and extent of Tanya's injuries made it very unlikely that she had been murdered inside such a small car, especially the car that Ronald drove, which was a Opal Cadet, which is quite a small vehicle. Why would Ronald suddenly decide to switch his account away from the snuff film accounts which had a lot more evidence to support it to an account that had a lot of evidence to disprove it. Was Ronald being threatened by someone? Was perhaps his family being threatened by someone? I know that every time that Ronald was uh, talked to by the investigators, he was brought to the local police station and was able to talk to his family. So perhaps his family told him that they were being threatened and that he had to change his story quickly. On March 17th, 2004, Ronald was sent for a psychiatric evaluation on the request of his attorney. Then afterwards, a trial date was set for August 30th, but the trial didn't actually take place until August 31st. Despite initially pleading guilty to all of the charges against him, Ronald decided to change his plea to not guilty, claiming that he was not of sound and sober senses at the time of the crime. The prosecutors argued that Ronald had become enraged when Tanya refused his advances on her, and when she refused to have sex with him. He then brutally forced himself onto her before killing her. The prosecutor managed to unsettle Ronald so much that he erupted saying, I'll sit in prison for life. I'll accept 25 years. Then on September 6, 2003, Ronald ended his testimony by saying, I'm sorry, Mr. and Mrs. Flowerday. If it is your wish that I die, I will. Tanya's parents both responded to this and simultaneously by exclaiming, it's too late. Later that same day, the judge ordered Ronald to be sent to a psychiatric hospital to undergo a 30-day psychiatric evaluation. The judge wanted to determine the merits of Ronald's blackout claims and whether he would have known what he was doing during the murder. Then on November 10th, 2003, he was sent back for another 30-day psychiatric evaluation due to yet another incompetence. In the first 30-day psychiatric evaluation, Ronald had only been evaluated by two psychiatrists. Now in African law, you have to be evaluated by three medical professionals for an evaluation to be trustworthy and used in court. Now, in a short turn of events, on January 7th, 2005, investigator Christelle was arrested, and she was arrested on police corruption charges. And this was because she had allegedly underpaid the police informants that had given her the information that led to the arrest of Ronald. And she had allegedly kept the extra money that she was supposed to give to the informant for herself. However, on May May 5th, 2005, the charges against her were dropped. Now, there's not a lot of publicly available information surrounding the investigation to do with investigator Christelle, but what we do know is that it delayed the trial 
for Tanya significantly. Investigator Christelle then resigned the day after the charges were dropped against her on May 29th. Due to the arrest and due to the fact that her marriage had subsequently broken down and that she had lost the respect of all of her peers. She quickly moved away from the area but publicly told the media that she believed that the snuff film probably doesn't exist but that Ronald hadn't acted alone in the murder. Ronald's trial finally continued on July 25th, more than two years after Tanya was brutally murdered. Now the result of Ronald's psychiatric evaluation was that they could not find anything wrong with him. He seemed of sane mind. There was nothing to indicate that Ronald couldn't understand the difference between right and wrong when he was in such a state. Blackouts did occur to Ronald, however this was only as a result of alcohol consumption and not as a result of heroin consumption. Interestingly, Ronald's account didn't match up to that of those who had actually suffered a blackout because his memory of the event after he had blacked out was almost perfect, which goes against what is typically seen in those kind of blackout cases. If you black out, your memory of what happened afterwards is usually quite patchy as you come back in to reality. It doesn't just stop and you're awake again, if that makes sense. On July 26th, 2005, Ronald Grimsley was found guilty of all four charges made against him. He was sentenced to life for murder, 18 years for rape, 10 years for indecent assault, and two years for theft. These sentences would be served concurrently. We can only hope that Tanya's parents and family found some kind of justice in these sentences. But it still leaves a lot of unanswered questions. We still don't actually know a truthful account of what actually happened to Tanya. Did Ronald murder Tanya on his own? Was it on video camera? Does the snuff film actually exist? Who else was involved? Was he threatened? Was his family threatened? Why did he change his account? Let me know what you think in the comments section below. Thank you all so much for watching this episode in my Curious Case True Crime series. If you're new here, I usually upload two videos a week, one on Wednesdays and one on Sundays. The Wednesday video is kind of usually quite a lighthearted comedy kind of video. Whatever kind of video I kind of want to do happens on Wednesdays. And the one on Sundays is this kind of video, which is true crime. So be sure to subscribe and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time that I post. Now I post updates on Twitter and on my Instagram stories. So be sure that you head over there and follow me on those so that you know when I am posting and that you can interact with me on polls and that kind of thing. Now, with all that being said, I will see you in the next video. University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.